Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. everyone, John Worth. I'm here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. We have two guests this week, uh, a bonus guest and a mainstream tennis player guest. Uh, first off, Sam Query joins us. He is at the Greenbrier in West Virginia, where he was playing world team tennis. And then, as he will explain, he is ready to embark on a full season uh, starting in August. And we talked to Sam a bit about what it's been like in the tennis bubble, what his plans are for the rest of the season, and sort of what the impact of this crazy and cratered year has been on a, on a player of, of his status and of his age. Uh, then we have Eric Hutchinson joining us. He's been on the, the show before. Eric is a, a friend, a big fan of tennis, and we talk a bit about what it's like to be a, a solo performer, a solo artist in the time of COVID, probably not dissimilar to being a singles player. Eric has a new album, Class of 1998. So we talk a bit about the process, a bit about this sort of enforced break that we are all on what the overlaps between music and tennis are right now and some tennis chatter with a big tennis fan. So uh, Sam Query first, Eric Hutchinson second. Let's start in West Virginia. You're in the bubble. I am. You're in the tennis bubble. Uh, let's, uh, let's start in the present. How's it been? Um, it's been awesome. Um, you know, for me, I haven't played a match since uh, Australian Open because my wife had a baby in February. Yeah. So, I mean, it's been five months, so I was excited to go. I think all the players here are are really loving it, and it's fun, and we're finally back to playing some competition, and it's been great. I mean, the I've never, I don't know if you've ever been here. I know I haven't. Most people haven't, but the resort is awesome. Um, so it is a bubble, but at the same time, you can – there's golf, fishing, a bunch of restaurants. You can go, um, you know, skeet shooting, ATVing, so you're, you don't feel like you're just – here playing tennis and going back to your room there's so much to do outside of tennis which has really made it fun for everyone because we are here for for three full weeks um and it's great i mean to be back and have some competition and and be back on the court i mean it's going great so far 
So, sounds like summer camp with some competitive tennis thrown in. That, that's exactly what it feels like, especially because you're, you know, you're in the mountains. And it's got a very, very much a camp feel. We're, we're only doing this as audio, but I have to say your, your backdrop is tremendous. It looks like... Uh, yeah, I mean, you can kind of see like... It's beautiful. No, it's, it's this part of the... I've never been here. Like I said, it's stunning. I mean, we went ATV in a few days ago, and you go just up in the mountains, and the views are just... Uh, I mean, it's like spectacular. It doesn't sound like a bad way to spend July. What's been the, um, what about sort of the, the, the training, the nutrition, the hydration, I mean, everything that comes with competitive playing? How have you been able to deal with, uh, with that? Um, I mean, for me personally, that's been, that's been tough the last like four or five months to find like the motivation for practice knowing or, you know, not knowing when we're going to start. Um, you know, you're kind of always like, well, like I'll practice, but like, well, I'm not starting for a while. I'll just practice the next day. And then I do the next day. So, you know, the last two months I have been practicing hard. Um, but there's, there's practice shape and there's match shape. It's hard to really get back into your match shape until you play matches. So, um, I'm doing the best I can. I've got Christian Lacasio who travels with me as like a physio here with me. So we've been in the gym every day, uh, and working on my body. So physically I actually feel fine. Um, because, you know, I, the team that I'm on, I'm only playing singles every day. So I've literally got a 30-minute set to five, and, and that's all the tennis I'm playing. So in the off days and even some match days, I'm finding the other guys that have off days and, and playing extra sets and extra practice and spending time in the gym and trying to make the most of it while I'm here. What's been the level of play overall? It's been high. I mean, I've played World Team Tennis for 20 years. Because of the incentives this year, um, semis, finals, and winners, uh it's intense the teams are into it i mean every you really feel like everyone's kind of laying it out there and um it's made it better you know it's been fun in the years past but with these incentives uh, it's it's up the level and there's a few more come ons there's a the teams kind of gathering around everyone a little bit more so it's it's been really fun and i hope they continue to do these incentives to, so it you know stays at this high level yeah, I mean, I was going to say, let, this is an interesting, you're a, a World Team Tennis veteran. This is unlike any other season you've had. You, you think this league can uh, use this crazy, this crazy three weeks as a springboard? I hope so. I mean, look, they've got Fred Luddy and Eric Davidson behind it, and they love tennis, and, you know, they seem to have the, the financial backing to help move it forward in a good direction. And, look, the, they've, because of what happened, I mean, the level and the talent they have this year is like no other year they've had in world team tennis. Right. You never see this type of caliber players uh, for a full season. So hopefully, I mean, I, I hope everyone that plays it this year, um, you know, especially those top players are going to say, Oh my gosh, this has been fun. Like this has been a great few weeks of practice. It's fun to be on a team. And hopefully for the years moving forward, they're going to, those top players are going to say, Oh my God, I want to do it again. Give it, give us your, your like top, Top four players of the season. If you were uh, writing in your MVP votes, who would it be? Gosh, I would have to look at kind of like the the win loss record. Um, you know, Bethany Maddox Sands is up there because she's just. It seems like every mixed doubles and every doubles, she's, you know, winning most of those um, sets. Um, I'm trying. Well, I mean, Kleisters was up there until she got hurt. She was just on fire. Uh, so I'm still going to put Kleisters in the mix. And then, um, gosh, I'm going to try to, I'm trying to think of a guy that's like been somewhat dominant. I can't tell. I don't know. I would need to look at like who's been winning and losing. 
Gotcha. I, you know, I was just looking. I was just looking at your roster. So uh, you haven't played. Uh, you haven't played a lot of doubles for a good reason. <laughs> right. Uh, you're, you're obviously on uh, the Las Vegas team with uh, a, a pair of twins. Um, am I am I right here? I mean, I, I don't know if Bob and Mike have talked about uh, not not that you're their publicist, but uh, I don't know if they've talked about their plans for the rest of uh, the rest of the year. Is, is it possible this could be uh, their swan song? No. No, no. I think they're definitely planning on playing playing next year. They, they have um, uh, they've come around on that. All right, good. Yeah, not a. You know, they've kind of joked about it, but I, I it sounds like they're going to kind of – this was their last year. They're pushing it to the next year. So, hopefully, we'll get another year of them. Gotcha. What's, what's, been, the, um, what's been the biggest adjustment? I mean, you're, you're obviously you're, – this is not the crowds you're used to. This is not the level of, of technology. What's, what's been the biggest adjustment, and what's, what's something that maybe hasn't been an adjustment at all? Um, like the biggest adjustment as far as world team tennis? Yeah, I mean, you played, you played the, uh, you know, you, you played those matches in, in Southern California a few months ago too. I mean, what's right. sort of uh, what's what's been tough, and what's actually been something that's been surprisingly easy? I mean, the toughest part is you got to come out like firing here because it, it is only a set to five. You feel like if you, you, know, you, you lose your first first or second service game, you like, gosh, like I don't have time to get back into it. I've let my team down. So you got to. Uh, you know, that two-minute warm-up you get, you got to make the most of it, move your feet, get going, go after it. And even before that, you kind of – I mean, most people are are kind of going around to the side and really warming up and, like, you're coming out with, like, a sweat ready to go, unlike kind of normal tournaments where you, you can almost ease into a, a match the first few games on both sides. Um, so that's kind of the – I feel like the biggest change. And, you know, I would say the normal part is, like, you kind of go through your normal warm routine as far as like an hour and a half before you do that, you get lunch. Um, and you know, it's, it's pretty casual, but it's, I would say that the biggest thing is kind of what I said at first. It just, you got to step out on the, the court from point one, ready to go. Um, you, uh, you, you mentioned you're, you're a new father. Congrats. Um, that, I imagine that made the, the shelter at home a little different, but perhaps. Yeah, was... actually, I got them right there. So you've, you've got the gang here. Yes, my wife and son are here. Uh, I mean, it's a good place to take your family, like yeah. I said, with all those things to do. And we're actually staying in a, uh, you know, this resort's giant. We're kind of like in a little cottage. So we got like a bedroom and a living room. So it's nice to have some space when he goes to sleep. We can kind of eat out in the living room and not, not have to whisper. That's, that's Ford Query who's going to get his first Google hit. Uh, what he, I'm trying to do the math in my head. Five, five months? Six months? Exactly five months, yeah. Man. Um, I, I imagine this has made your, uh, your, your shelter at home, your, your COVID year, a little different. Uh, definitely, yeah. I mean, look, most players, you would have missed a handful of weeks or months at the beginning of your new, your new son or daughter's life. But I've got to be home pretty much every single day. Um, so that's been awesome. And then this is, this is his first trip, you know, and it's, uh, it's been fun so far. He's not sleeping great here compared to what he was doing at home, but that's just, that's just part of uh, being a new parent, but it's, it's been awesome to have my wife and Ford here. They come down the matches that were, you know, the times kind of matches, matches up rights where he's not napping or sleeping. They come down and watch and otherwise, you know, they stay in the room and uh, you know, roll around on their, on their tummies. Man, we, we are, uh, we're, we're all looking for silver lining in COVID. Uh, it looks like you didn't have yes. to look so hard. That's great. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you talked about the Bryans. You are, um, 
like I guess what you're you're coming up on 33. How do you think this strange cratered year is going to affect careers? I mean, is this sort of six six months of sabbatical that you get to tack on to the end, or or do you think um, as players get older, this is a this is a critical period? You know, I'm not sure how it's going to play out. I definitely think it's the older you are, the tougher this like little sabbatical off has been. I know, like for me, it's Kind of like I was saying earlier, sometimes it's tough to find the motivation and all the time off, you might feel a little rusty and you're like, wow, I only got a few years left. I feel like I just missed six months of it, including a Wimbledon and, uh, you know, and, and possibly a French Open where if you're 21, you, you know, you've missed the time. You're, ah, so what? I'm, you know what? I've got, I've got 12 more years of, of playing all these. So for me personally, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm extremely bummed that I missed all these and especially... I don't know how much longer I'm going to play. Let's call it three years for, for, you know, just the sake of this. And if you miss a Wimbledon, I mean, it's 33% of my Wimbledons that I had left are gone. And so, um, you know, I'm bummed. It has been fun to be home with my family, but at the same time, they were planning on, on traveling to Europe. So I was going to be with them anyway. Um, so I, I, I think it'll be tougher for the older guys, but we'll have to see how it play. start going. What's been the fitness level out there? I mean, you talk about the level of play. What's been, um, I mean, you know, you guys aren't playing best of five matches, obviously, but what's, what's been the fitness level? It, it's tough to tell because there's such short sets, but it is, it is hot out here. It is humid. So you, you do feel it a little bit, but everyone for the most part seems to be in good shape. No one's, got it. No one's, um, no one seems to be struggling physically, but the sets are too short to even to even say. So we are uh, we we are in late July. Oh man, that's uh, they're they're singing your song. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What uh, what what's the game plan for the uh, the rest of the season? Um, you know, I got a few more days here, and then I'll head home, and then it sounds like the USTA is making their decision on the U.S. Open in a few days. So I'm just crossing my fingers that we've got Cincinnati and the U.S. Open, and I'm planning to go play as many tournaments as I can. I hope to play Cincinnati, U.S. Open, Madrid, Rome, French Open. Um, and then I know they don't have a schedule planned out after that. We have a council call tomorrow in which we're going to talk about that. But if, it's, if that means it's Stockholm, Vienna, Paris at the end of the year, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit them all just because I've had so much time off and I'm eager to play and like I said, again, I'm, I'm older. I don't know how many, how many I have left, so I want to make the most of it. Is that f- fairly typical from, from your conversations? Is what? Is that fairly typical from your conversations that, uh, it's, you know, it's, we're, it's, it's almost August here. Let's play some tennis. Yeah, it, it's, it's tough to gauge, you know, with the players. There's a, a handful of them that are, you know, I only want to go back unless the, you know, basically we have a vaccine and it's very safe and all these rules are in play, but it's, it's hard to put an exact playbook in when, when no one knows what this virus is and how it works. But yeah, I'm, I'm definitely more on the side of like, let's get going. Let's figure it out. You know, we're, we're going to have a tournament. There's probably going to be some guys and coaches that, and, and women that test positive. Hopefully no one gets deathly ill, but um, you know, it's time to adapt and figure out how to play during this pandemic go back to camp and uh i appreciate the time and we'll uh we'll talk soon
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, thanks to Sam Query from Summer Camp slash World Team Tennis in West Virginia. There were some Wi-Fi issues, as you might expect from Summer Camp in West Virginia. But uh, good of Sam to spend some time with us to uh, give us a little introduction to Ford Query, his uh, son born in February, and uh, talk some shop. Uh, Next up, Eric Hutchinson. You know Eric has been on the podcast before. Uh, He is a solo artist who's toured with every pop star you can think of. His one of his biggest hits anyway was about his wife watching Roger Federer called uh, Watching You, Watching Him, which he performed for us live and in studio back when we did things like live and in studio. Eric has a new album out titled Class of 1998. So we talk uh, some tennis, some 90s tennis, and talk about the overlap between being a solo artist uh, as a musician and being a singles player, especially what the process and what the thought process is like in uh, in the time of COVID. So uh Here's Eric Hutchinson. How are you? How you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Let's talk tennis in a minute. We, we had, I was thinking we had Steve Flink on last week who's talking about his Sampras book that's just coming out. What, uh, what's it like for you? What, what's it like to have put out an album in the middle of uh, COVID 2020? Um, it's been a frustrating experience. It's certainly not the worst thing going on in the world right now, but on a personal level, yeah, it's been frustrating. I've had to delay the album a couple of times and um, it's been a little weird. You know, I can't, can't tour right now and, and do that, but I'm just glad the album is out. I think it's nice to have some distractions right now. And this album in particular, Class 98, is a bit of a time machine back to a completely different era so it is a nice way to sort of escape reality for a few minutes. We could use a time machine. I'm, I'm guessing you're talking mostly musically, that this is a, a nod to the 90s. And do you, do you tell me? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, an, it's an alternative uh, rock time machine. You know, I feel like in TV, you got Mad Men or, you know, movies. You can do a, you can do a, a period piece but it's not really done in music that much. And this is like, I specifically tried to recreate a 90s alternative rock album and I wrote the songs for it. And so um, I've just been spending a lot of times mentally in the 90s kind of remembering, I was in high school at that point and um, just remembering all things 90s because I, I, I love the 90s, but I see 90s now that I'm not in them anymore. 90s is obviously the last, uh, the, the pre-digital decade, right? This is, this is the last decade uh, before the internet becomes a full-blown thing, even though, you know, right. I think most people had email in the late 90s. But um, what impact has that had on music? Well, that was one of the things when we were making this album was this all, all that 90s stuff that I loved, all those 90s musicians, they, they were doing tools and editing and everything was still being played live in, this, in the studio. So we had a lot of discussions about that, about trying to do as much of it live with, and without tweaking and definitely no auto-tuning and things like that. Um, 
I think there's been, I mean, I think there's lots of amazing music now. I like to say there's a better time to make music. I think to me, this, this sort of style of nineties alternative grunge, it was, it's so uh, personal to me is kind of when I was coming of age and it just feels nostalgic in a way that kind of like hurts my heart a little bit, you know? Is there, is there a tennis tie in here? Uh, are we nostalgic for Sampras and Agassi and Steffi and tennis in the nineties? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is interesting to think about now, you know, as we're sort of shifting from the big four to the big three to the big who knows what, and there's always this thing of, like, it'll never be as good as this. I certainly felt that way in the 90s about Sampras and Agassi. I was an Agassi guy. I'm here to talk after after your last interview about the Sampras book, but I was, a, I was an Agassi guy, and after I read his book, I understood why. It was because he was a, a tortured artist, and... Uh, just didn't didn't have it all together and, and sort of a flawed player in person and I I love that about him you know that's that's what I was drawn to the whole like rock and roll image thing but more just that he he didn't win all the time so when he when he did win it was even better you you were okay with somebody with some dents yeah I think it, it was exciting especially you know this I think tennis is always trying to like put this stiff upper lip and say like, oh, we only do things a certain way. And then every now and then there's sort of push the boundaries, which I, I personally think is exciting for the sport and, and is important for the sport. We, we're talking about sort of tennis and athletes getting back to, uh, to some semblance of normal and, and making accommodations as we are, uh, as we are speaking, the, you know, the, the Miami, the Miami Marlins are testing positive left, right, and center for, uh, for, for COVID and baseball might be imperiled. What are you going through as, uh, as not, not an athlete, but as a musician who also has to deal with things like traveling and performing indoors and, and all the, uh, the uncertainties? What's this been like for you? I mean, it's been a major shutdown in, in you know, the way most things are. And, and the baseball stuff is, is very depressing to me and frustrating, but it's also this reminder that like, we can't quite get back to life as, as we used to know it. And, and there's this, uh, you know, I'm interested in trying some of these outdoor shows. People are doing things like playing at drive-ins and different sorts of socially distanced audience per participation. But there's a reminder that you can't really cheat the virus and that it figures out what to do. So, I mean, I've mainly just been home and, and um, it's been weird for sure. You know, it's, I miss, I miss live music. I miss hearing other people make music. I miss making music with other people. That's the part that really is hard for me, but I can't imagine doing a, you know, a major tournament where you're bringing people from all over the world. It just seems like a nightmare. I mean, that's why they canceled the Olympics, right? Um, yeah, no, someone said, listen, he, here's what we're going to do. We got this global pandemic. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a sporting event. It's going to be in Asia, but we're going to bring everyone from all over the world, including fans. The athletes are all going to stay in something we call a village. You sort of go step by step. You, you could scarcely have scripted something less, uh, less COVID friendly. Um, yeah. Is, is anyone, I mean, the one thing about sports is at least you have, you know, there's, there's a hierarchy and there are leagues and there are officials making decisions. I mean, what's with, with music, who, who are the gatekeepers? I mean, who's going to decide when it's okay to go back touring? Who, who are sort of making these, uh, these decisions? Yeah, that's an interesting point. It is a lot more 
arbitrary. There's certainly, there's people who have been getting press because they're doing shows as if it were 2019. And that's been a real problem, you know, and there's just doing a show indoors with no sort of social distancing and just kind of seeing what happens. And there's people that are trying all different versions of it. But yeah, it's, uh, I think it's really, for me, at least in my world, it's up to the promoters and to the, you know, the big guys like AEG and Live Nation. They're, they're trying to figure out the best ways to do it and, and have it make sense. But you see stuff like this and, and Novak's uh, exhibition tournament and you just say, oh, well, this is what happens when we, everyone gets together is everyone gets sick, you know? And so it's, uh, needs to be taken seriously, I suppose. You perform over Zoom, I've seen. Uh, how, what is that experience like and uh, how similar or dissimilar is that to conventional performing? I've, I've shied away from internet performing for so long because it's usually a pretty hollow experience for me, but um, I, I've done some stuff lately which has been more fun and, and I'm starting to do sort of these group Zoom things, which is, um, and I actually sort of learned how to do it from a, a trivia night that you and your family hosted. But to me, the best part of doing a, a concert online is I did a surprise 40th birthday party for someone recently. And just getting to see all of these people interacting together, and I was just sort of the linchpin and the excuse to come together, that was really fun. So to see 15, 20 families that hadn't actually been able to interact, but they got to interact through the sort of the Zoom, and I kind of played the moderator and, and said hi to everybody and let them say hi, and that part was really fun. So, I mean, more and more, I like having the music because it's something that brings people together. Tell me more about class of uh, tell me more about class of ninety eight. What are we listening for? And, and uh, how, how do we? By the way, we, we need more tennis tracks. What are you, what are your uh, what are your enduring hits? It's all about your wife watching Federer. We need another yeah, one. That's true. It's true. My wife didn't even know. I don't think she watched very much tennis. If my tennis, my wife is a massive tennis fan. But I was actually a, a big nineties tennis fan, and uh, I, I grew up outside of DC. And I was just saying the other day, I should have been. Back then they called it the Leg Mason. I think now it's the City Open or something. But I really kicked myself that I wasn't going to that more. It was really in my backyard. But the one time I did go, I got to watch Agassi and Michael Chang just practicing, actually. They were just, like, hitting. And uh, I remember it really well, and it was, it was awesome. But I actually was wondering with you, what was your connection to tennis in the 90s? Oh, man. Um, I was tennis in the 90s. I mean, I started Sports Illustrated in 96 seven okay sort of started covering immediately no i was always i, I worked at the um it's actually right right at the same time of the calendar right i worked at the new haven event um it, when i was in college i think i was in charge of the ball kids at the new haven event in like 1992 uh when stefan edberg was your champion i'll have you know uh maybe 91 um but no i mean it's it's to, to me it's like the most seductive sport and I, I don't know. It's interesting. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know how you are the same way. I mean, usually you get sick of something and you get jaded. And, and I feel like I'm, I'm sort of as in different parts of it and different players, but I'm, I'm as into tennis now as I was when I was, you know, 21 years old. What about you? And so, well, for you, was it as soon as like you got to Sports Illustrated, it was like, I'm here to do tennis and tennis only, or, or was it like tennis seems to be an angle that makes sense and I'll, I'll figure it out or I mean like was were you eat sleeping and breathing tennis I never uh, I never told you the story 
No. Great story. Um, no, so I came, I came right from uh, like a law school refugee who came to Sports Illustrated. I was supposed to do sort of legal and investigative stories. And the late, great, uh, and he, he really was great, Frank DeFord said, what you're doing is fine. You can be a generalist, but you need one sport where you can really sink your teeth into. And may I make a suggestion? Do, do you have any interest in tennis? I said, yeah, I actually like tennis. You know, I played in high school. I'm, I'm into tennis. Why? And he goes, oh my God, you got to cover tennis. It's like, everyone is crazy. And uh, he basically said, you know, if you're, if you're covering a sport, sort of storytelling, journalistically, narratively, it's, it's men and it's women and it's different ages. And he said, it's, it's kind of the wild west, but it's a great story to cover because everyone's got a story and everyone's nuts. And man, did that, uh, that was a great piece of advice. So I sort of volunteered for everything tennis related. And, you know, I mean, you, everyone wants to cover Wimbledon. Not everybody wants to go cover the Davis Cup tie in Milwaukee, but you're in your twenties and you just want to do anything to get some run. So I sort of started as, as the B tennis writer. And uh, that's what that was, was the first uh, major you covered. I mean, the, you know, you live here as well. Like the U.S. Open, do we, do we count that? Where you can, you definitely, there, uh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, you'd go out to the Open every year and the, the T&E would be the cost of a subway ride. I think um, the two, God, I'm dating myself. The 2000 Australian Open was the first uh, major I had to get on a, a plane to go cover. Wow. Um, but you, yeah, have you done, uh, have you done all four? Um, I've. Never been to the Australian, but I played at the Australian Open site where I was opening for Kelly Clarkson. So I got to like tour around the site and we actually played like on what- Did you I play Rod Laver? Yeah, we played Rod Laver, but I didn't actually get to see any matches then because we were there uh, when was probably it? in the summertime or something. That was like five so. years. That was when you were, you were touring with Kelly Clarkson, I think. In yeah, the- yeah. So that was, it was cool. But I've been to the other ones and uh, I did a show in Dubai that happened to randomly be the Dubai final and so we went and saw Federer and Novak and um been to the French Open a couple times been to Wimbledon and and uh the one I really would like to go to is some of that some of that clay warm-up tournament stuff Madrid Monaco that sounds pretty luxurious and fun hey hey it's funny you brought up uh you brought up that Rod Laver you brought up uh Melbourne it's really funny you watch these, you know, there's, there's a Pearl Jam documentary and they drill in on Rod Laver. I, I suspect when Rod Laver was barnstorming, uh, you know, tr- trying to decide whether he wanted to be an amateur or professional, he never thought his name would adorn an arena where Pearl Jam uh, documentaries would be held. But, yeah. um, but no, I'm thinking, you know, people say I love tennis. And to me, it always is, they, they sort of fall into two camps. And one of them is I love tennis. And the next thing out of their mouth is well I haven't really followed it since McEnroe and Borg but you know I used to love <laughs> and then you have the other extreme uh which are people like you who you you really love I mean you you know you're Philip Kohlschreiber's like you uh yeah pretty hardcore I mean I have to give my wife Jill Bream a lot of the credit because she really pulled me back into the sport um we've you and I've talked about it and you've written about my wife but she's a, a massive Federer fan and so much so that it's just we've just become really huge tennis fans and and um yeah it's really fun it's just fun to know all these players and it's so different from team sports you know like i find i'm i'm always thinking about that and i relate to tennis as a sing as a singer songwriter who's done a lot of it solo but just this idea that you sort of are on your own and you 
are only as good as your trainers that you can afford to hire and, and your coaches. And, you know, it's fascinating. But on the other hand, it's also like everyone's got a shot on some way or another, you know? So it's, it's sort of a meritocratic, how do you say that word? It's a meritocracy on some level. That's a good, keep, keep going with that. You, you see these tennis players as kindred spirits as a, as a solo performer. I mean, to me, it's like, I just think about that part of it a lot of like how hard it is for like a younger inexperienced player who doesn't have the budget to get from tournament to tournament, as opposed to like these big juggernauts that are rolling along. And it's very similar to like being an opening act to compared to like the headliner that's got the tour buses. And, you know, it actually gets easier, the better you get at it in some ways, you know, because the pressure's higher, but also like you have more money to spend on making your life smoother. And um, it's just fascinating to think about like, okay, we're going to play the, the Super Bowl. Patrick Mahomes, you're on your own for getting yourself there. You know, just make sure you're there. Right. It's wild. I mean, it takes a, a lot of um, independence and like responsibility to be a tennis player. I feel like, you know, you carry your own stuff out to the court. And like, I, I just sort of love that thing that it's, it's very um, singular and that there's, that part of it I relate to a lot of just when I step out on stage and it's, you know, I'm doing a show by myself, there's nothing, I'm not going to wait out the clock either. You know, I have to just finish the show and do the songs and um, yeah, that part of it I really love. You're, you're uh, no one, no one's calling a timeout for you and no one's letting you uh, pinch hit or take a couple of plays off. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the, you know what? I, I always think the, um, what, what you were talking about before the, the finances, first of all, I think are a reason why a lot of these careers are prolonged, right? When, when you don't have to wait in line, you know, Serena Williams isn't standing at the Delta gate. She's not waiting in line for uh, her enterprise rental car. Right. And if you have an elbow injury, you can bring an elbow expert with you on the road when you hit a certain level. Um, yes. The flip side is that we saw during this pandemic that there's some players who, whose names you know are having trouble making rent. Um, I, I wonder to what extent that mirrors music where, you know, you, you were on tour with Kelly Clarkson or you've, you've sort of, uh, you've seen this up close. I mean, what, what is the division between the, the opening act and the headliner? I think those, those divisions are quite large and I've been fortunate enough to make a, a good living doing this and I've gotten very lucky along the way in a lot of ways. And, and, I'm just not a person that loves to blow money. I didn't go buy a, a Porsche or something as soon as I made some money. So I've been lucky, but yeah, I mean, everyone though, I think in every genre of work is still ex assuming they're going to get a paycheck the next year or something, you know, you, you sort of are making assumptions that you'll have a job and things. And it's, it's just fascinating to see which jobs you can do and what you can't do, you know, and, and how, that line has just been drawn and it's not a line that you could have ever really guessed, you know? Right. That's what's weird about tennis is in theory, you would think it'd be a sport that could lend itself very well to social distancing, except that people are coming from all over the place. And so it's, it's confusing, but I don't know. I mean, to you, if they can get the golf working, why can't tennis happen? I guess they're doing some of these, these uh, reopen tournaments and things like you're that watching tennis channel no i mean I, I think you nailed it which is the the actual act of hitting a tennis ball is fine it's and you know mo most golfers are clustered in one of three states it's it's a little different when 
I mean, it's, someone was showing me a map. I think, I think it's 111 different countries where players in the U.S. Open came from last year. I mean, I think it's just all about the logistics of travel. And then it's, do, do you have to quarantine before you come here? Do you have to quarantine when you go back to your country? I mean, I don't know if you saw the, the Australian Open came out with its guidelines for 2021. And right now it seems as though, unless there's some sort of athlete exemption, they can get, everyone's got a quarantine for 14 days landing in Australia. Hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, can, uh, can, which, which tennis players can afford to spend two weeks in a hotel room? I guess right. if you're about to play a major, it's one thing, but that's, that's a complication. Yeah, that's interesting. What's your, uh, so, so let me ask you this. Um, as, as we speak, the U.S. Open is on. Then we head over to the, to the clay events that you wish you could uh, go to one year. And then we have a French Open. I mean, what, what's your level of interest in tennis right now? Are you, uh, you going to be following this? Um, I mean, the few baseball games that have happened so far make me think that, yes, I'll be excited to watch sports. Even though it doesn't feel totally normal, it's, it's still nice to have a distraction. And I'm just, I'll be curious to see how many players actually show up and what that means. And, you know, everyone's all concerned about the asterisks or whatever. But I don't know. I mean, to me, yeah, it's exciting. And it's, I think it's cool to see us as a, you know, as a human and a human race sort of adapting and trying to figure out how to make these things work, even if they're not the, you know, most important things in the world. So, yeah, I'll be excited to watch. I also have a hot tip. If I were a betting man, I'd be betting on Sloan Stevens across the board because I recently realized that a good friend of mine, Jen Widerstrom, has come on as her trainer. And um, I just believe in her. And I've seen some of the videos of Sloan working out and everything. So that's my hot tip for all of you guys out there. Sloan Stevens to win U.S. Open number two. I was going to say, that would make her a multiple U.S. Open champ. Um, all right, this is great. Where can, uh, where can people get Class of 98? You can get it anywhere you listen to music. You know, you can stream it, you can download it, or you can go to my website, erichutchinson.com. But I think especially for a person of a certain age that, that knows the 90s, it's, it's a real fun, nostalgic time machine. But I think even if you don't know the 90s, I, I played it for some current high schoolers, and they were like, yeah, it still feels like high school. All the problems you're talking about are, are the same. So... Uh, hopefully people will, will dig it. Even if you have old school green day. Um, <laughs> great. Thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this. Thank you. All right. Thanks to Sam. Thanks to Eric. Uh, enjoyed both those conversations. Uh, Jamie, it's been a while. How are you? It has. I am good. I am hanging in. I'm wearing a mask, like hopefully the rest of the world. How are you doing? Well, I mean, I feel like there are these tiers of, uh, of complaining. And if you, uh, you know, if, if you have your health and you have some semblance of employment, you, you forfeit some levels. So in the grand scheme of things, uh, no complaints. But I think, you know, like everyone, uh, the, the world is coming apart at the seams. And it'll, we can only wish for the days when we could come into the office and sit across a table and maybe even go to the gym on the way home. I think um, it's, it's a strange period for everyone right now. And we are, you know, you sort of look at the calendar and we're five months into this already. So um, that's, that's a, a long answer, but we're, we're doing okay. We're eager to uh, have a little more progress and resolution here. How's that? I think you hit it right on the head. <laughs> do you, uh, let me ask you this. Do, do you have world team tennis fever? Yeah, I mean, okay, first of all, I think Sam Query should 
be on a commercial or marketing materials for the Greenbrier because he really talked it up. Um, as you have been calling it summer camp, I had no idea that there was so much to do, so many activities available for the players. So it was really cool to hear him talk about, uh, you know, going ATVing or fishing or whatever they have them doing out there. Uh, it looks beautiful. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's really cool to see, as Sam said, people really getting getting excited about this and really, you know, they're, they got to be ready to play from the get-go, which I thought was a really interesting point. And then, you know, there's a, a good amount of prize money and a lot of incentives at stake that they're playing for and uh, it's showing. I, I thought that was interesting too. I mean, I thought that, uh, yes, we are, we are all creatures of incentive and uh, we wrote about this in the mailbag last week. I mean, there's, there's real money on the table. This is not just an exhibition where you come and cash a check. I mean, this is performance based and it seems as though that's having a real impact. I also thought it was interesting that you sort of have this, this on-site recreation and sometimes I think people have a, a bit of a distorted idea of what it means to be a tennis player. And you say, oh, you're so lucky you get to go to, you know, Paris and Madrid and Rome and, and thread through all these cities of the world. But it's not as though you really get to enjoy the city. And it, it sounds as though this is an event where, yes, there are tennis matches going on, but you also go fishing and ATVing and you get to bring your family. And it's, it, I think it's, the, the rhythms are probably much different from a tournament where Everyone loves going to the French Open and you can take your Instagram and maybe on an off day, get a nice meal, but it's not as though you're taking in the surroundings the way the players in West Virginia are. So um, no, I, I give, I give world team tennis a lot of credit. I mean, there was, there was an opportunity here and they took it. And I think one thing, Jamie, that's going to be interesting. I think this whole idea of the sports bubble and can it work? Is it realistic? can you contain these athletes? It's something that really all sports are dealing with right now, some more successfully than others. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, so far as we record this, no positive tests, and it does seem like world team tennis has essentially done what they set out to do when they launched this idea a few months ago. Right. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting that world team tennis is tennis's first way back, you know, post Corona trying things out because, you know, previously, as you said, this was sort of just a, an, an exhibition for a lot of players and there was so much on the calendar, so much going on. And now all of a sudden it's become sort of the example for tennis, which I find interesting. Um, and of course, you know, we, we talked with world T tennis CEO about it and um, on this podcast and yeah, it's just interesting to see how, how tennis is, as, as of now, being successful with their bubble. Um, and, and now, of course, the big question is the U.S. Open. Yeah, and I, I, mean, I think that's, that's exactly right. And I think we want to draw parallels. We want to use words like bubble because the NBA's bubble so far has been successful. Baseball's non-bubble has been punctured. I think uh, it won't take us long to sort of differentiate between all the players on one site when they can roll out of bed and, and be at the facility. I mean, I, I'm not sure the parallels between the Greenbrier and the U S open are perfect, but I do think there's a lot the U S open can learn. And I, you know, I mean, let's, let's do what we always do during COVID and, and timestamp this and say that as you and I speak, the U S open is on. And from, from what I've heard and talking to players and talking from agents, it, it's really on. I mean, players are starting to book their travel and players are starting to, figure out uh, sort of rooming configurations for their coaches. I mean, I can't imagine 
that the USTA at this point, having come this far, is going to say, you know what, we're going to rethink this. Uh, they have given themselves that opportunity. I think that's smart. Uh, there is this sort of final, final deadline, which I heard was Friday uh, the 31st, this Friday, but now it may even been pushed a little more. But I, I can't imagine at this point in the game with really so many balls in motion right now, and again, play, players booking travel, not just for themselves, but their whole entourages and figuring out spacing and quarantine. I can't imagine the USDA would pull the plug right now, but I do think that they have a real challenge and there's some similarities, but this is not immediately parallel to what we have at the Greenbrier where everybody essentially is, is sleeping at the same facility where they're also playing these competitive matches. So um, right. it, will, uh, it will be will be interesting to see. I mean, I think we're all eager, you know, it's, it's what you and I have been saying for, for weeks. And I realize that this has probably gotten tiresome for, <laughs> for, for, for you, for, for everybody, for our listeners, for players. I mean, everybody is sort of, you know, I, I think we all want the same thing, which is a, a return to tennis, but a return only if it's under the correct and responsible conditions. And, you know, I, I have my, reservations I, I feel like they're two columns right and you and I both live in uh, in the New York area and I have to say it is unrecognizably different right now in a lot of ways than it was in March April May and that said there are still an awful lot of complications here so I mean I don't know I don't know if you have strong feelings but um, you know I, I feel like it's, it's one of these things where what we want we're all you know, we're, it's unanimous. We're, we're, all, uh, we're all in agreement about what we want. I think the question is, can it be achieved under responsible conditions? And I think, uh, you know, I, th I think there's a healthy argument to be had there. Do you, do you have strong feelings right now? Yeah, I, I think you're right to say that this has probably become a, a tired conversation. But you know what, every time we talk about it, there's a new wrinkle or, um, you know, something new to discuss. And now, you know, I agree with you. Obviously, I've, I've been in the you know, New York, New Jersey area this entire time. And things do seem to be better here than other places, which of course is not how it was. I mean, it was, things were pretty grim here. If you if you talk to us, you know, in, in April or even May um, when we've been discussing the US Open, but I am still a little hesitant. I agree with you that, uh, you know, the US Open situation is not going to be like it is in the green virus right now with World Team Tennis and, and that will have an effect. I also, um, and we talked about this very early on, you know, there's just so many rumors of players who will and will not play. And, you know, you had a question about it in your mailbag this week about, you know, how can you justify or not put an asterisk on uh, a grand slam title for someone like Dominic team or Sasha Zarev or some of one of these next gen younger players who all of a sudden turn around and win the U S open because you know, the likes of Federer Nadal or Djokovic or others are not playing. Um, so I think that for me is going to be the most interesting, you know, if it, if it does go through um, I think there will be some obstacles and the USDA is really going to have to um, quickly adjust and, and pivot when there are, you know, positive tests or breaking a protocol or whatever it may be. But when we, when we get down to the tennis, I'm really interested to see who actually plays. Um, we've been talking about this for a while. And again, there's a lot of rumors of, of players who will and won't. Um, and so for me, that's going to be really interesting. And, and um, I think it will also help paint a picture, as we've been saying, about the French Open as well. 
I don't know if you saw the uh, the Lexington entry list that um, that that someone had sent me. And I tweeted out, but I mean, I you know, and I think I think Sam articulated a lot of this. I mean, there are players who are really really anxious to get out there, and the Lexington player list. I mean, this is this is a first year event. There's $202,000 in prize money. I mean, this is a, a lower tier event. And yet they're drawing players like Serena Williams mm-hmm. and Venus Williams and Sloane Stevens and Coco Goff. And you go down the list and what you're seeing, you know, with Sabalenka, Azarenka, this is a top flight field for an event that's never even been held before. Never mind that, you know, Serena Williams usually gets more an appearance fee than the entire prize money for the tournament. And to me, that shows that these players, they're overriding. I mean, I, I think there's a sense of, listen, I can take precautions. I'll wear my mask and wash my hands and use my hand sanitizer. I need to get back to hitting tennis right. balls. And, and say, you know, to, to some extent, Sam articulated that as well. But um, I, I do think you're right that, first of all, let, let's stress that there's a difference between uh, an, an entry list and, and an actual field. And already, you know, Muguruza's pulled out. I mean, that, that um, is, not, is not final by any stretch. But I, you know, someone predicted this to me. They said, you know, players right now are, are sort of laying low and they're expressing some ambivalence. But when there are playing opportunities on the table, are they really going to pass them up? And if you look at the entry list for Washington, D.C., before that event was canceled, that certainly supported that theory as well. That there were a, a lot of top flight players who were willing to play in Washington, D.C. And you just get the feeling that players have essentially said, as, as Sam did, you know what, enough is enough. I'm willing to risk it. And if I'm going to get back out there, I'm going to play as many events as I, you know, there's, there's uh, I keep thinking, I'm, I'm dating myself, but there's, there's an old Eddie Murphy comedy routine about, uh, you know, you're, you're in the desert, you finally find a saltine and it's the best cracker you've ever had. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, I think of Lexington, it, I'll play. I think of it as, um, you know, people who are on, on a very basic level, but people who are kind of just going out to a restaurant right now, right? It's uh, almost 100 degrees, hot and humid in New York City, and you'll do anything. You'll wait online and, you know, just to sit down at a table outside and, and enjoy a restaurant sort of like you used to, right? Because you haven't done it. And with these players, it's almost, it's, it's way more than that because as we've discussed, they need to make money. You know, this is not just, oh, I just want to play tennis. This is, I haven't, for the mo- for most of these players, I haven't, you know, seen a paycheck in a long time. And I've, you know, been here training, not really knowing when I'm training, you know, what I'm training for and when I'm coming back. And when there's something on the calendar, especially something that is, you know, in, in, in the U.S. or maybe a drive away or something that, that as you said, that can be done safely in their minds. Um, I, I really, it makes a lot of sense as to why we're seeing um, so many players in these tournaments that didn't even exist before 2020. Um, Jamie, that's so. I'm supposed to be the cynical one. This is so off-brand. But, but I would also say, apart from the money, and I, I think you're right. I mean, I think you're you're absolutely correct. That uh, again, we are creatures of incentives, and uh, a lot of players haven't had a paycheck. But apart from that, I think there's a very practical reason to play, which is that it is really hard to have this kind of a you know a, a sabbatical, basically, to have a junior year abroad, and then go immediately and play the U.S. Open. In the case of men, it's, it's best of, of five. Course. It's a major. It's got the heat of New York. It's hard courts. These players need warm-up events. And, I, I mean, I'm surprised that not every player is, is entered in this, 
Cincinnati event that's going to precede the U.S. Open. I mean, the, the notion of having six months off, and some of this is about conditioning, and some of this is just sort of psychologically, some of this is just self-confidence. The idea that you would have six months sabbatical and then immediately play a major and everything that, that comes with it and the heft and the history and the rhythms and the notion that you know you have to win seven matches, in the case of the men, 21 sets of tennis. Um, I, I just feel like, how do you walk into that cold? So I, I think, um, you know, it's, it's money that's in the, the possibility of a paycheck that uh, is luring these players. But I think also it's just nuts to me that you would restart your season at a major. So uh, a strange year. Of course. And that's, that's the other thing that's going to be so interesting when these tournaments do come back. And we've talked about this is, you know, what are you most looking forward to? And it, that competitiveness and the, the technical skill and the fitness levels, I mean, all of that stuff is going to be so much more of a factor than it used to be um, just because everyone's coming from such different points. You know, I think, um, players already were, you know, tailoring and tapering at different um, points of the season based on, you know, their age, their experience, the amount of tournaments on their calendar every year. And now this sort of put everyone at the same starting line, um, which I don't know if that actually ever happened before. You know, I mean, we, we do think of the, the Australian Open as the beginning of the year, but there are players who, you know, play tournaments all winter, you know, all December. And there are players who their first tournament back is, you know, a tune-up in Australia right right ahead of, of uh, you know, the Australian Open. So it's, it's really interesting that now all of a sudden, um, you know, these players are going to be back at a very, um, you know, back at a point where they're kind of on the same level. I think you're right. I think which players are back is, uh, you know, that, that remains to be seen. I've also heard two very different schools of thought about how these events are going to play out. And somebody suggested to me that this is going to be, and I don't know, maybe, maybe you have thoughts here, uh, again, I'll, as, as an elite athlete, also as someone who follows this. I mean, there are two thoughts. One of them is that this is going to be an absolute crapshoot in the same way Kim Pleisters can come in at, at age 37 uh, as, as a mother of three and, you know, be, be the, uh, the midseason MVP of World Team Tennis and beat the most recent major champion that absolutely every player in the draw is going to have a chance to win this. And this is going to be the most open tournament ever. And the other school of thought, some a former player who I was talking to the other day said, don't be ridiculous. That's not going to be the case at all. This is really going to, this is really going to favor the strong players and the favorites and the, the usual front runners. And that it's the U S open sort of go down the list and it's, it's Mugu, it's Serena, it's Andrescu. And it's the top players who have had, who are just, you know, objectively probably better players and also have had the means to travel first class and hire personal trainers and that these draws are going to have more chalk than ever. So they're, they're two very, I mean, these are you know, both, both credible people, right. um, both, both former players, and they have very, very different ideas of how this is going to shake out. One of them says it's going to be the most open fields you'll ever see and anyone can win. And the other is saying, absolutely not. These draws are going to have more chalk than ever because uh, the favorites have these built-in advantages. I don't, I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, we've talked about this too, and it's interesting to hear both sides of that. And in, in, the, in my heart, in my gut, what I feel is I have to go on the side of it being more open than ever. I just think that, you know, I agree that the, the top players definitely have 
the advantages, um, you know, in terms of whether it's, as you say, the private flights or the training or whatever it is. But the fact of the matter is, is that they've always had that, right? And they've always had this advantage. Um, but there's something about this time um, that I think, you know, for, for certain players at a lower level, um, there's just... I don't want to say there's this desperate feeling or just, I just feel like everyone's sort of clawing their way and trying to just figure it all out. And I think that um, it's going to really open things up. I think it's anyone's game because as I said, there's a, a level playing field of sorts in terms of, um, you know, this, this break and this hiatus that happened with tennis all around the world. And I just feel like everyone has had a different experience with the coronavirus and with everything going on. And I think that will bring out um, qualities in people that maybe we haven't seen before. And I think that will shake things up a bit. So I'm on that side. I don't know where you stand. No, I, I think that's really interesting. And I think you're right. I mean, I think the other great wild card, of course, is just who's going to play. And it's pretty clear. I mean, Federer we know is not. And it doesn't look like Nadal is inclined to uh, play the U.S. Open. I mean, honestly, it probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense, given that uh, a full boat of, of clay events bloom in, uh, in Europe immediately right. afterwards. Djokovic is, uh, you know, I've, I've heard mixed things on that. So I think some of this is just going to be a function of who's in the draw. But I, I will say one thing that's interesting the USTA has been, and I, I think, again, overall, I give the USTA very high grades here. I think they've been on this. I think they have not been uh, sort of blinded by, by money or this desire to sort of unconditionally start. There's been a real attention paid to science. I mean, you know, and I, I think, Jamie, you and I had Dr. Brian Hainline on in April, and it was mm -hmm. clear that the, the, the science and the data and the trends were going to be what ultimately guided this. So, again, I, I give a lot of credit to the USTA and they've had these, these calls quite frequently with all sorts of different constituents, um, with players, with agents, with the tours. And it does seem like there's some flexibility here and they're changing, you know, I, I think depending on, as, as of now, I was told that depending on where you're coming from, that might change your rooming configuration. And if you come from a hot zone, if you're coming from Florida, you may not be able to have a roommate the same way you might if you were coming from Western Europe. So it seems like there's some flexibility built in, but one thing they've been adamant about is they are not changing format. They are not going to best of three sets for the men. And I think part of that is a real desire to sort of keep this heft of a major and essentially say, look, there's going to be enough that's wacky about this, no matter what, starting with okay. the absence of fans, we are going to do everything in our power to sort of, keep our gravitas here. So um, I, I think you're right. I, and I, I tend to think it's as much a function of the field as anything else, but I, I do think it's entirely possible we're going to have, you know, uh, I, I can't remember who said it jokingly last week. Some of you are, David, go fast, your champion. Um, right. I, um, I, I would be more inclined, you know, if Berrettini wins, it would not surprise me. I mean, just pick a name, any of 50 names. But I do think the USTA and, and the tournament itself is going to do everything in their power to sort of retain as much normalcy as possible. I, I, can, we, can we get rid of the word normalcy as a uh, <laughs> non-word as a side note? But um, no, it's, it's going to be, the whole thing is going to be really sort of voyeuristically interesting. And again, you just hope this is, and time stamped, but you do hope this is the NBA in the bubble when the, the big scandal is a player who leaves and goes to a strip club for chicken wings. 
and not baseball where you have the majority of an entire team testing positive. So, um, right. You know, it's, uh, you know, I, I think the, as I understand too, the USDA is fully prepared for a player or multiple players to test positive and there's a policy in place and there's tracking and they're going to err on the side of caution. They are not, uh, you know, if you test positive, you're not playing your match. And if it's a, you know, if it's a false positive, deal with the consequences later. But um, the flip side is they, they are confident that uh, as of now, they are confident that they can pull this off. So uh, we shall see. Um, this will be a U.S. Open like no other. But again, as you and I speak, it's a going concern. We, uh, we await the decision as we have been for, I, I, will, I will say months, we've been uh, talking about this. So it'll be really interesting. And then it'll be a lot of adjust, adjustments along the way. But the thing that I'm most looking forward to is some U.S. Open tennis. Yeah, I think we can all agree on that. And I think um, it will be nice to get back to talking about results and points and chases and who's playing well and, and who couldn't hold the lead. I, I feel like everything has been, and you would, you know, I, I don't, you, you would expect this to be the case and it's certainly not unique to tennis, but you know, Kyle Edmund hits Dan Evans racket too hard. I don't know if you saw that and that dominates the tennis news and you know, Angie Kerber returns to Torben belts and you, you would have thought that uh, you know, this, this was Pete Sampras's retirement announcement. So um, it will be nice to have a little more proportion and uh, get, get back to talking about match results and not who's tapping whose racket with uh, a little too much brio. Um, all right, that, um, that does it for today. Why, why don't we end there and uh, we will have another guest uh, next week. Um, and hopefully by then we will have a firm answer on uh, the US Open and either this will be formalized with some sort of announcement from the USTA or else there will be a fairly radical about base because uh, right now, um, you know, a, a lot of players are making hotel reservations. All right, that does it for this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to Sam Query. Thanks to Eric Hutchinson. Thanks, as always, to Jamie. Uh, we'll have another podcast and other guests next week. You can subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And we will uh, talk to you in seven days. Mm-hmm.